I will say, and I, I was kind of thinking about it as, as I went through the day today, um, as we closed last week, we were talking about that promise that God made, that he would not put any of those diseases that he put on the Egyptians, that he is the Lord who heals. And I know we kind of went off on a tangent at that point, and it kind of took up the rest of our time. And I might have come out sort of under some, I may not have made clear whether I am uh, pro uh, the promises of the Old Testament being for the church of today. And so I just wanted to sort of clarify. There there are, uh, of course, a lot of different arguments that can be made about the differences between the New Covenant, the Old Covenant, whether or not uh, we are under any sort of obligations to the conditions set forth by God uh, in these stories, as we're reading through them, as we're talking about them, we're going to come across, if we get that far tonight, we're going to come across the Ten Commandments, and I'm sure that's going to be quite <laughs> quite uh, uh, interesting to talk about these laws, these binding statements that God makes, these commandments, and what role does these things have in the life of the church of today. And I just want to, I guess, clarify if I can. You, you see a couple of different perspectives. One that you may have heard of if you were raised up with a Schofield Bible or a Dake's Annotated Reference Bible or uh, even I think Thompson Chain might have something in it. Um, you might have heard something called dispensationalism. This is the belief that history, or at least the history of human beings, has been divided into, I think, the teaching is seven dispensations, from the time of Adam and Eve all the way through to the end of the world, and that in each of these dispensations, God is dealing with humanity in a different way. I'm not personally, I, I don't consider myself a dispensationalist, but I appreciate the attempt to sort of organize uh, the history, or at least the history of the Bible in those categories. I, there are others who are very literal. You probably know some of these kind of people. Um, they, they teach the immutability of God's character and his nature and that what God has said is binding on all people of all times. These are your Sabbath keepers. These are your Seventh-day Adventists. Um, Jehovah Witnesses will get into this some, sometimes. Some old-school holiness Pentecostals will go down this line at some times. Then you have others who take the position that the New Covenant fulfills and replaces the old, that Christ is the fulfillment of all of those rules and laws and regulations and ceremonies and that all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus and that as long as we have Christ, we are under no obligation to anything else in the Scriptures. And 
that's probably probably the mainstream opinion of most of the Christian thought in Protestant circles. Uh, as always, I'm a little bit of everything. I'm sort of all of the above and yet none of the above. I certainly believe in the immutability of God's character. I believe the God of Exodus is the same God of Acts, I think, you know, or Revelation. I think the God of Exodus and the God of Revelation have a great deal in common. Uh, I just think we have to be very careful sometimes because we want to cherry pick the stuff about the God of the Old Testament that we like and the promises that we like and and the things that uh, that we, we are comfortable with. And we tend to minimize or sweep under the rug the stuff that we don't like. And when I look at, and if you've been with us since the beginning in January, we have gone through now about 65 chapters or so of the Old Testament. And in those 65 chapters, we have seen God destroy the world, destroy cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, destroy the land of Egypt through a series of plagues, including the death of firstborns, innocents caught up with the guilty, in the vengeance and in the wrath of God. And so I, I think we have to be careful that we don't, we don't whitewash. We don't try to take out the stuff that we disagree with or that makes us feel bad and just hang on to the things that are positive or that we can profit from. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God. The Old Testament points us to the person of Jesus Christ. The New, tells, New Testament tells us who the person of Christ is and what he means to us, but it's, it's one covenant. It's one people of faith. This is made very clear in both Old and New Testaments. Jesus uh, is for all. And uh, we can certainly look at a verse like the one we read last week and take great comfort in knowing he is the Lord that heals. But we also equally have to read those fearful passages where his wrath, his justice, his righteousness is being exercised and understand, as C.S. Lewis wrote in one of the Narnia books, uh, speaking of the lion Aslan, the the symbol of Christ, he is very good, but he is not safe. He is not, uh, uh, you know, he's a lion. He's not a pet. And the tame God that we preach sometimes, and the God that we bend to our own desires and our own wills, these scriptures would not recognize that God. God is a sovereign and just ruler, having mercy upon whom he will have mercy. And even in our world today, we can still see, I'm not trying to say uh, or blame God for the condition of the world in. We've done a very good job of bringing about our own trials and tribulations. But when I read about a flood in the book of Genesis, I can't help but think of a Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. When I 
read about cities being destroyed by fire and brimstone. I look out and see cities being destroyed today by rockets and, and, uh, and bombs. And uh, I, I think we have to be aware of the fact that the, the God of the old and the God of the new covenants are the, is the same God. And while we delight in his loving kindness and in his grace, we must never take for granted that those things that happened then could never happen again. I think if you take a good look at the God of Revelation, you will find that he bears a very striking resemblance to the God of Exodus. The victory of Jesus Christ over this world will be violent and bloody and destructive as everything that opposes and exalts itself against his name and his authority is torn down. And so we have to have a sort of balanced approach. Yes, let us rejoice in the promises. Yes, let us take by faith the knowledge of the God who loves and cares and heals and with, and holds us up and strengthens us. But let us not presume that all those other things about that God are no longer relevant. If we're in for a penny, then we've got to be in for a pound. All right, so tonight we begin in chapter 16, and this is a familiar story, uh, or at least familiar to those of us who have been reading along. It begins with the complaints of the children of Israel. And in God's answering of those complaints, this time the complaints is about not having the food to eat. And God takes this opportunity to demonstrate once again his provisional nature, his providence. And this is the story of the quail and the manna. And uh, I, I just go, I, I'm not going to read specifically the verses there. You know this story. Uh, he, well, let me read, let me at least read verse four. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, if you want to know why I read that verse, and some of you might be able to figure this out. If you are a faithful uh, prayer warrior who prays the Lord's Prayer on a consistent basis, you will know that one of the lines in the Lord's Prayer is, give us this day our daily bread. And I don't know if any of you have ever made that connection to the story before, but that is where that thought comes from, that God would test his people by forcing them uh, or, or by only providing enough for the day that was at hand, the daily bread. Um, except for the Sabbaths and the holy days, the bread that came from heaven would only be good enough to eat for that 24-hour period. If you tried to store up a little bit extra, just in case something went wrong the following day, it would spoil. You wouldn't be able to eat it. Um, and so this is a, a really an interesting story. The, the, the writer here tells us that this went on 
for 40 years that this bread did not fail, God answered that give us this day our daily bread prayer for 40 consecutive years, the entire period of time that Israel journeyed in the wilderness. And, of course, we find the quote from Jesus himself in John chapter 6, where he says that he is the bread from heaven. And he's not talking about what Moses gave the children of Israel to eat in the wilderness. He's talking about his own body, his own flesh. And so we see a connection here between the manna and the body of Christ, which we partake of even in our communion services. So this is a very rich uh, story in meaning and in in the, the day-to-day life of not just the Israelites of old, but our lives today. We also depend on the Lord for our daily bread. So uh, it's a very powerful story. One of the mentions is made here at the end of the chapter of a pot uh, or of this manna that fell on that first day being put in, put inside of a pot and that pot being kept uh, in the, uh, I think it's verse 34, it says, for Moses, as, Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. This is the first mention in all of the Bible of that Ark of the Covenant and that one of the items that was kept as a testimony to all the generations of Israel was a pot of this bread, this manna that fell from heaven. In chapter 17, there are two stories. The first concerns another complaint that the children of Israel had while they were in the wilderness. That is, that they did not have enough to drink. And this time, and we've seen this complaint before, we just talked about it, I think, a little bit a week or two ago, about the waters of Mara and the bitterness of those waters and how those waters were healed. And we see now again that they've moved on further into the wilderness. And of course, once again, they find themselves thirsty and not enough water to drink. And this time, Moses is commanded to take the very staff, the same staff that turned into a snake, the staff that he raised up over the Red Sea. He's to take that staff and strike the rock of Horeb, and when he strikes the rock of Horeb, water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And uh, one of the traditions that goes along with this is that that water also flowed for 40 years, that it formed a river or channel or canal that Israel was able to drink from for the entirety of their time in the wilderness. And in the New Testament, this water is mentioned by the Apostle Paul, who says it was a type of Christ, that the water represented the life-giving grace of Jesus Christ, that it was he who not only was their food, but he also was their drink. And, of course, we would look at that today, again, in the context of our communion with the Lord. 
And it does speak to the very necessities of day-to-day life. We can, we can have a lot going on. We can, you know, there can be a lot of different things that we focus on, but the, the basic and fundamental needs of every human being on this planet, food and water, what we absolutely, when you boil down what it takes to survive, it really comes down to that essence. As we look around the world today and we see the problems that people have, even getting enough food to feed themselves or their families for one day or having clean water to drink. Um, we, you know, we live here in a very blessed country, a very bountiful country, and and although we're feeling a little pinch right now, it's nothing compared to what many are dealing with around the world today. And this journey of Israel in the wilderness is a testimony that uh, God is a God of provision who cares about our basic needs. Do I have any questions or comments on the waters from the rock? Um, yes, Bishop, it's just a comment. You know, when we look at, um, you know, the rock, we look at uh, um, the water that came out, we look at the manna um, that was sent from heaven so many hundreds of years before Christ came, and he became that rock with that ever-living um, water, and his body, um, you know, was that manna. Um, you just see like this the awesomeness of God, like all the dots are connected. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I said a few minutes ago in talking about the connection between the Old and New Testaments. And, you know, Christ is very present in these scriptures. And we tend to, I know most Christians today, well, let's, let's be honest, <laughs> A lot of Christians today don't bother to read either one, but the Christians who do read their Bibles um, tend to focus more naturally, tend to focus more on the New Testament, the Gospels and the Epistles and books like Revelation. And when we read the Old Testament, you know, we kind of sometimes pick and choose. We may read a few Psalms that we like, or maybe we get excited about a book like Daniel, but... um, a careful study of every scripture will find a, a beautiful presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Bible talks about the Lord, it calls him the Word of God. And it uses the same term for these scriptures. These scriptures are the Word of God. So the connection is a very real one. And then... I think a little bit more to your point, if, if I'm not mistaken, sister, and you can correct me if, if I am, but in this story and in many of the others, we don't just sense the presence of the Lord, but we actually see his presence manifesting in, in physical ways. Now, you know, this, this is something that was happening a very long time ago, and that pot of manna, uh, as far as I know, is, is gone, unless Indiana Jones finds it somewhere. Um, I don't think we're going to see that pot of manna, so I don't know that we'll ever really know 
what that substance actually was. There's any number of theories out there, and they're all probably good theories, but none of them you can look at and say with any sort of definitive authority. Uh, whatever this substance was, and the word manna actually it means, what is this? So even the, even the Israelites didn't know what it was. But the fact that it fell at the command of God and did not cease falling for 40 years until God uh, withdrew it uh, would rule out anything natural. Um, there is no natural substance that falls from the clouds that's like bread that can be eaten and baked. And, you know, and um, I think one scripture here says it tastes, it had a little bit of a taste with a little bit of honey in it, so it had a little bit of sweetness in it. Um, there's nothing in the natural realm. Uh, some, I saw one commentator talk about it being clouds of some sort of insect that would, and, and that's a little, that's a little, uh, that's a little gross. I don't think we are, we wouldn't think about eating insects, but the fact that it, if it happened once, like the quail, I didn't mention the quail, but you can make an argument for a flock of quail. Uh, you know, battling a tough wind, tiring themselves out and falling in the camp. You can make an argument for that happening once. What you can't make an argument is for it happening every day for 40 years. This is a supernatural event. And I, I know God can certainly work through natural means, and he does many times. But every once in a while, God decides to act outside or, or over the realm of nature in a supernatural way. And this food was not just edible, but it sustained them, body and soul. Uh, you know, it was, it was healthy. It kept them strong. It, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, there, there was no sickness in the camp. We saw that promise in the previous chapter. And even to the point, we haven't talked about it yet, but even to the point of their clothing never wearing out, their shoes never wearing out, um, the, the journey of Israel for 40 years, we tend to focus a lot on their failures and their rebellions and, you know, you know, they didn't live up. That generation all died in the wilderness because they didn't have faith in God. And there's a lot to pick at. There's a lot of fault to find. But there's still these supernatural manifestations. We didn't even really get into the pillar and the cloud. We didn't even really talk too much about that. But just this physical presence of the Lord that was manifest to them through the substance of whatever it was, the bread of heaven, our rain bread from heaven. Uh, it's just a wonderful story. It's just an amazing picture of the grace of God, of the goodness of God, even in the midst of all of the judgments and all of the, the things that are happening at the same time. Oh, yes, sir, go ahead. Just agreeing with you that the scripture is replete regarding the stuff concerning Jesus. Because uh, I was just looking at Luke, the 24th chapter, and the, and the 27th verse. It says that, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then he went, when he went into the room with the disciples after the resurrection, he said, these are the things, these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, 
that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And then it says, then open e their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. So you're right, absolutely right, that from Genesis to Revelation, the, the spirit of prophecy is all about Jesus. So having come into the wilderness, they're on their way to Horeb. Uh, they're on their way to where Mount Sinai is. Uh, the second half of chapter 17 deals with the first of the battles that they would have to fight against their enemies as they journey through this land. And this is the, this is the battle against Amalek. And here we see a couple of we see a couple of uh, items I think that are very interesting. The first, the first is that Amalek came and fought with Israel. In other words, Amalek fought them out. Now Amalek was the was the name of the tribe. Uh, these were actually descendants of Esau. Amalek was one of Esau's grandchildren, and so we see that that old enmity between Esau and Jacob make, a, make an appearance here. And uh, this is the first of the, the nations that would come and try to prevent Israel from reaching the place that God had appointed for them. Now, we don't know a whole lot um, about the various forces, uh, the strength of the forces here, but we do see that Joshua is appointed the war commander, or the, the we would call it the just the general of Israel, and he is the one who leads Israel in war. He goes out to fight with Amalek, and we also see the story in the story here that while Joshua is fighting, Moses is standing at the top of the hill with his rod lifted up in his hand, and uh, as he holds up his rod in his hand. We see that Israel begins to prevail over their enemies. As he grows tired and lowers his rod, the enemy of Israel begins to take the upper hand. And so I think a very important part of this story is the contributions of Aaron and Hur. We know the name Moses. We certainly know the name Joshua. Uh, and certainly these were great uh, men of God and uh, men who were used to do great things for the Lord. But I think there's a lot of value in remembering the contributions of those whose job it was to support or simply hold the hands up of those whom uh, were doing God's work. No battle is won single-handedly, uh, at least in this instance. But uh, Aaron and her supporting his hands, he was able to keep them up until the enemy was defeated. And we also see here that a curse is placed on the house of Amalek and on the generation of Amalek. And you will see it time and time again. Amalek is mentioned many times in the Old Testament, even unto the days of David, as an implacable enemy of God's people. And God's people are commanded to take every opportunity they can to defeat and destroy the people of Amalek, and remove the remembrance even of their name from under heaven. 
And at the end of this story, we are introduced to another of those names. We've seen it now a couple of times. Last week, we talked about Jehovah Rapha or Yahweh Rapha, the Lord our healer. And here we're introduced to Jehovah Nissi or Yahweh Nissi. This is another of those compound names. And here it is given the interpretation, the Lord is my banner. And that certainly in this context carries with it that connotation of the Lord fights on our behalf or maybe more accurately, we fight on his behalf and our enemies are his enemies and his enemies are our enemies. Chapter 18 talks about a visit from Jethro. You remember Jethro from earlier in the book of Exodus. He is the father-in-law of Moses. He is the priest of Midian. Once he sees what Yahweh does for Moses and the children of Israel, he commits himself to be the follower and priest of Yahweh. He, he converts himself, and we can assume he converts his tribe and brings them to the support. We're also told here that Zipporah and Moses' children come with them. So evidently Moses had sent his wife and children away while they were going through all of the trials of those plagues in Egypt. And we find that Jethro comes and is able to give very good and wise counsel to Moses, counsel that should be taken by everyone who is in leadership, and that is to not try to do everything yourself. I wish someone had, well, somebody probably did give me that counsel. I probably wasn't a good listener back in those days. But one thing I have learned, as with the story of Aaron and her, and again with the story of Jethro, we see that no one by themselves can, can do everything that needs to be done. And Jethro's advice was for Moses to set up a sort of rudimentary governmental system. Now think about, think about what it, just what it would take to organize. You know, we don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people uh, Israel is at this point, but just to organize uh, these people and inevitably in any group of people over, you know, one and a half, there are going to be conflicts and there, and there are going to be uh, confrontations and disagreements. And so under Jethro's counsel, Moses sets up a uh, sort of judiciary system. He appoints people who cannot be bribed, who are committed to the righteousness of God, and uh, begins to talk to them about the various statutes and laws and uh, how God wants his people to live and how to resolve the conflicts, and even down to from the rulers of thousands to hundreds to fifties to even groups of ten. They have their person that they can go to. Uh, and this is just a brilliant organizational system. You know, many organizations, including churches, could benefit from Jethro's advice. Um, it's, it's difficult for any person in leadership. And I know one of the things I struggle with, and I've been very blessed to have amazing people 
But it's really only been in the last 10 years or so that I've really been able to give up uh, having to make every decision and having to oversee every aspect of church life. It, and it's it's not, it wasn't ego or, or maybe it was, I don't know. I, I can't, I don't know what it was, but you, know, you always have that feeling that if you are not doing everything yourself, somehow or somewhat it's not going to get done or it's not going to get done right or you're going to, uh, uh, you're going to be held responsible for something that somebody else did that you didn't tell them to do. And, and so if you, you kind of have that overdeveloped sense of responsibility. And this advice from Jethro to Moses to sort of delegate that authority to trustworthy people and, let, and lighten the load a little bit uh, is good and sound advice both spiritually and how we govern our churches. And it's good advice Secondly, you know, uh, many companies fail because those at the top are not willing to trust the decisions of those that are under them. And uh, I've dealt with that in the past. I'm dealing with that in the present. So uh, it happens in the workforce. It happens in the church. This is good advice from Jethro. So we've gotten through the Red Sea. We've gotten into the wilderness, and now finally at chapter 19, we've made it to Mount Sinai. This is, of course, Mount Sinai would stand as uh, literally the high point of Israel's wilderness experience. It is here that they meet their God in person. It's one thing who have seen the miracles and seen the works of Moses and heard the words that Moses has spoken. Certainly at this point, I think the majority of them are convinced that whoever this Moses is, he's, he's definitely got some kind of connection to this God. And, and, uh, but it's at Sinai that the people are actually able to see for themselves the majesty, the glory awesomeness in the literal sense of that word of the God who had delivered them. And I think about that sometimes. We, I know I do a lot of emphasis on the glory of God, worshiping God, honoring God for who he is. And I think we do the best that our human minds can be, but I just don't know that any of us can fully appreciate really what a wonder God actually is. And uh, maybe a Mount Sinai experience would convince us. I don't know. But it says in the third month, so uh, you know, 60 to 90 days after they had left the land of Egypt, they came to the uh, slopes. They came to the, to the plain around the mountain. And here, uh, God, God is going to use this as the opportunity to not only introduce himself, but to actually uh, give them the rules and the laws and the commands that will truly make them his covenant people. Let's read in verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you, on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. If those words sound familiar to you, uh, it's because they're repeated in 1 Peter chapter 2 and applied to not just the Jews, but to the Gentiles who had come through uh, faith in Christ Jesus, this peculiar people, this special treasure, this kingdom of priests, this holy nation. This is, uh, you know, we can look at the call of Abraham's sword as the foundational event of what we would call the called out ones, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is here where that calling out is defined and its purpose is outlined. Notice first that he's talking up to them about the covenant. We've seen this a couple of times. We won't go back over it, but this is a special outworking. God is the God of everybody. He is the God of the whole earth, and he says it here, and yet in a unique and special way. He has entered into covenant with a particular group of people among the nations of the world. I I know it's easy to take that for granted. But just imagine for a moment, and I don't even know how how to do this the right way. I don't know that there is a parallel in any other experience in our world, but it if if we could just imagine where some great and mighty king, some um, uh, awesome king would come into our world, come into our land and go to the poorest of the beggars and the weakest of the people and say, I'm not just everybody's king, but I'm actually going to obligate myself to you in a particular way. I'm going to take up your care and your cause. Uh, it's an incredible thought. It really is. Where the God of creation, the God, the omnipotent, omniscient God, humbles himself, and there's no other way to say it, reduces himself to come into any sort of binding arrangement. You know, we've, you, you've probably heard it said one at one time or another, the only limitations upon God are those that he imposes on himself. The only obligations that God has are those that he imposes on himself. There's nothing we could have done. There's no uh, scenario where we could have compelled God to honor any agreement that we could have dreamed up. You know, you... You, you, you see all of these treaties and all of these uh, uh, agreements and pacts that are made between various nations, and sometimes they're made at the point of a gun. <laughs> sometimes they're made for economic reasons. You know, sometimes they're made for political reasons. But we, we had no leverage. We have nothing to offer. We, there's nothing we could have done. We could not have said to God, now listen, you've got to, 
you've got to you've got to bind yourself to us by an agreement or or we're not going to build you any more temples or anything like it wouldn't have worked this is a voluntary act of god to come into a covenant relationship to treat us as equals even though we are so far from being his equal that it's that it's that it's not even comprehensible it's an amazing thought I truly hope, I truly hope that you appreciate it. I really do. But to say that he's bringing them into covenant and he is going to obligate himself to certain things on their behalf. And we certainly know the history of Israel is full of all manner of failures and faithlessness, but God has always been faithful to the covenant promises that he's made and that he's going to take them, the second thing he says there, is he's going to make them his own special treasure above all of the peoples of the earth. So again, he's everybody's God. He's, he's the God of the, the Hindu. He's the God of the Buddhist. He's the God of the Muslim. He's the God of the Jew. He's everybody's God, even though they don't recognize him and don't honor him and don't worship him. But here he says to those of us who come through the covenant with Abraham, you're going to be my people. Earth, oh earth, everything belongs to me, but you, you're going to be my own peculiar, special treasure among all the peoples. You are going to be my most valued associates, my most valuable people in the world. I'm going to do things for you that I will not do for anyone else. It's an amazing, humbling uh, incredible privilege. I uh, will never know the the full appreciation of it, but I but I hope you can understand a little bit of what it means for God to come to you and say, out of all the people on the face of the earth, out of all the kinds of people on the face of the earth, I'm choosing you. I'm choosing you to come into covenant with me, and you're going to be my own special people. And then he says, the third thing he says is, for this, piece, for this reason, because you're going to be unto me a kingdom of priests. That word priest is, is a very powerful word. It, it has this connotation of intercessor, of representative, of one who has access, one who can stand in the presence of God, one who, who can come to God with Whatever is needed, whatever burden has to be met, whatever, whatever has to be done, but also as a priest to represent God before others, to be a testimony of who God is. Think how easy it would be. Think even now today how so many in so many places, including right here in the good old U.S. of A., have no concept, no accurate idea of who God is. They have these, these poor imitations, these false deities, these incomplete pictures. And yet it is us, it is the kingdom of priests who are primarily responsible for representing the full and true picture of God to the world. And then he, he says you're going to be a holy nation. That word holy there does carry with it the connotation of 
uh, of righteous and and sanctified and and walking uprightly, but its primary me its primary meaning that word holy is separate. In other words, you're not going to be like the rest of the nations. I'm not going to treat you like the rest of the nations. You're not going to do the other things that the nations do. I've said this to my children. I've said this to you in church. There's things that people outside the covenant can do, and it seems like they get away with it. It seems like nothing ever happens. It seems like that God isn't paying any attention. But if you or I were to do them, God would be all over us. Well, that comes with being a separate people. We're not like the others. I'm not saying better. I'm not saying worse. This isn't a matter of prejudice. This is simply of a matter that out of all the peoples of the world, God has called us to stand apart, to stand apart in every aspect. And we don't do a very good job of that. I'm first one to testify. We don't do a very good job of it, but in a lot of, I'm afraid in a lot of parts of this whole nation, it's hard to tell the difference between who is of the world and who is of God's holy nation. Uh, and we could certainly do a much better job of that today. But here at Mount Sinai, they were going to be given a way to live and a way to act and a way to treat one another that by its own character would set them apart from everybody else. There would be no one like them among all the nations of the world. And I can even say today that is still primarily true of the Jewish people as a whole. Wherever they are, and I'm speaking of the biological descendants of Jacob, wherever they are, they stand apart, sometimes to their own detriment. <laughs> sometimes it breeds suspicion. It breeds fear. It breeds persecution to stand apart. But they, they have learned their lesson. They will tell you that we're not like the others. We've been called to be separate and that doesn't mean to go live on some island somewhere and not have anything to do with the world. That's not how God means this. But to be separate while being in the midst of the world. And I think this is one of those things, because Peter applies it to the church, that we could very much take to heart and say that this is as binding on you and I today as it was on Israel the church should stand apart. The church should be different. It troubles me to see things in the church um, that I would see in the world. Ways of doing things, ways of behaving that are no different than the way that people outside the church would behave. I, 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 I know when I talk about holiness sometimes it conjures up some things about you know making a distinction in the way people should dress or the way people should talk and and, and those matters can be exaggerated sometimes we care more about the outside than we do the inside I, I, but this the version of holiness that I subscribe to doesn't really make a distinction if we are holy, we will be different. I think I can sum it up very easily in saying that if you are holy on the inside, you will be different 
You will look different. You will speak different. You will act different. You will not be like everybody else. And that can come with a lot of burden. That can come with a lot of conflict because when you stand apart from people, people feel condemned. They feel judged. They feel like you've, uh, you're looking down at them. But that's the calling. That's the calling, to be a wholly separate people, to be different, to be unlike all the other people of the world. And it troubles me when that is not the case, as we see in many Christian lives today, many churches today, it's, it's almost impossible to tell where the world ends and the, the, the church begins. But those who truly belong in covenant with God, those who are his special chosen people, those who take their priesthood seriously, will recognize that it is a necessity, it is necessary for God's people to stand apart. Not in judgment, not in prejudicial, we're better than you, holier than thou, so that the world can know there is a different way to live. There is a way that is pleasing to God. There is a way that is righteous and good that benefits not only the individual, but benefits the community, benefits society. We are supposed to be salt and light. We are supposed to be a blessing to every country that we dwell in and every city that we dwell in, every community that we dwell in. Even the people who hate us should not be able to say an evil word against us because we are truly a benefit and a blessing. And sometimes I feel that just like Israel of old, we fall short, we fail on this. We care more about our privileges than we do our responsibilities. We care more about what we can take and what we can gain rather than what we can share and what we can give. And that is a very human failing, and we see it very often in the story. But I think that holiness of nation is uh, still critically important. The world needs to know that there's a different way. Uh, if it all just looks the same and sounds the same and has the same values and goes about the same way of doing things, then there is no real uh, attraction or no real difference to make between the people of God and the rest of the world. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 1030 a.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. Or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33312. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.